This is The Connection, a Dirty Free Hub podcast connecting gravel cyclists to where they ride through short stories about culture, history, people, places, and lands. On July 12th, 2023, Dirty Free Hub held a launch party to kick off its read and ride program for the book Big Lonely Doug. Now, if you're not familiar with Read and Ride or the book, before continuing on, you might want to pause this episode and give the episode called Big Lonely Doug intro a listen first. But back to this launch party, which was both an in-person event for those who could join together at Crow's Feet in Bend, Oregon, as well as an online event for those dialing in from afar. So imagine it's 7 p.m. in the evening and a bunch of cyclists are sitting in rows of chairs and directing their attention towards a screen at the front of the room. On the screen is me, Sarah Birch, director of the Read and Ride program. I'm dialing in from Seattle, Washington. Also on the screen is Harley Rustad, author of Big Lonely Doug. He's dialing in from Toronto in Canada, three time zones to the east. So let's go ahead and get this party started with an introduction of Harley. It is honestly, it's such an honor to be the inaugural uh, book for this this project. It's such a wonderful idea and uh, I'm just thrilled. So thank you so much. Cool. So Mm -hmm. glad you're here, Harley. Really appreciate it. So you are a master of taking your readers on a literary pilgrimage. I discovered you last year when I read your most recent book, uh, Lost in the Valley of Death. And I would describe your book as a sort of into the wild in the age of social media. So your book tells the story of this guy named Justin. And 10 years prior, he left his job uh, in the tech world. And he goes out in the search of trying to find deeper meaning in his life. And he documents his adventures on Instagram, and he amasses a huge following. And one of his adventures is to go to the Indian Himalayas, where he uh, enlists the assistance of this holy sadhu. And then all of a sudden, just uh, Justin disappears. So da-da-da-da! And you, Harley, uh, weave together detail and suspense in suspense and this really gripping tale that kept me awake way past my bedtime, trying uh, to go on this pilgrimage along with you, trying to figure out what exactly happened to Justin. So when I finished reading your book, I was totally wowed. And I told myself, I need to get my hands on everything that this Harley guy has written. And that's how I came to read Big Lonely Doug. And knowing that Vancouver Island has these really fantastic cycling routes, your book inspired me to go on a literal literary pilgrimage to go meet the trees that you talk about in the book. So how about you start off by telling it, telling us, how was it that you were inspired to write Big Lonely Doug? Yeah, so as, as it was mentioned, I'm from the West Coast originally. I was born on uh, Salt Spring Island, uh, which is the largest of the Gulf Islands, I think, for people in Washington State or Oregon might be more familiar with the San Juan. So it's kind of the Canadian equivalent of the San Juan Islands, a pretty small little place, and really grew up um, in the shadow of these trees. I spent most of my childhood, um, you know, hiking and camping across Vancouver Island and across BC. And so I, you know, really became 
you know, quite enamored with with the, the beauty and the power of, of what these, these forests can offer. Um, but I also, you know, around middle school, I, I uh, had the opportunity to, to visit Carmana Provincial Park, which is one of the uh, most famous parks on Vancouver Island uh, and was the site of these old growth logging protests in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, quite famously, that really drew the international eye onto Vancouver Island uh, for this issue in, in the first place. And I was there only a few years after those protests had subsided and and uh, and and had turned into a park. And that was an incredibly profound experience for me uh, to see this what could be created out of out of protest and out of activism. I was taken to logging protests as a kid. Um, and so I think it was these kind of two sides of the coin, two sides of the issue and two sides of this ecosystem the beauty, the power of what can be grown and what can be produced by nature uh, in these very uh, specific ecosystems, but also what humans have been doing to them for uh, for 100 years. Um, the scale of industrial logging and, and essentially what we're doing a pretty good job of, which is wiping them off the face of, of Vancouver Island. And so I was really brought up steeped in all of these issues, uh, the good and the bad, and it and then kind of fast forward a number of years, I came across this set of photographs, this environmental activist on Vancouver Island named TJ Watt, uh, who works for an organization called the Ancient Forest Alliance based out of Victoria. And he was an, this incredible photographer who had taken all of these photographs kind of representing what I knew, how, you know, the beauty, the green and the gray, the clear cuts, as well as the forests. And I, I remember going into a meeting at a pitch meeting at the magazine where I work, and I was kind of presenting a short profile of him or a photo essay focusing on his work. And I could see people kind of their eyes glazed over. We've heard this story before, all that kind of stuff. And there's one photograph that he had taken that I turned everyone's attention to, and that was uh, a picture of Big Lonely Doug. And it was something that when I first came across it, I had never seen before. It was in a single frame, in a single photograph, it just encapsulated this entire issue. You know, this 20 story tall tree, uh, Douglas fir that had, that was standing alone in the middle of a clear cut, in the middle of devastation around it. And to me, that said something unlike any other photograph, any other experience I'd had on the West Coast. Um, and it, it my, my kind of story brain started going, not only was this kind of a fascinating issue, this symbol that could be that could speak to an issue, but I had a lot of questions that came from that. And the first one was, well, somebody must have saved that tree. Somebody must have stood before that tree and said no. And most likely that person was a timber worker, somebody who worked in the logging industry as these people who are often the last people to see these forests still standing. And to me, that was... Uh, uh, conflict that was uh, an issue there. You have one person doing one deed that ultimately creates this massive, profound scene. And so I set about to find this logger. I eventually tracked him down and and interviewed him for an article that eventually became the book. So it's it's very personal. This whole journey for me has been um, from you know a young kid growing up in these forests to uh, to now. <laughs> sitting in front of you and, and talking about this, this book I wrote about it. Yeah. 
It's a really challenging topic because there are so many competing interests and each of those competing interests values the trees differently. You know, you have the loggers, you have the activists, you have the First Nations, you have the business side in the community of Port Renfrew. So who is the audience of your book and how did you go about balancing, um, because you do such a, a delicate job of balancing all the competing interests, how did you go about uh, balancing those interests given your audience? It, it may be no, I mean, now you know where I'm from. I'm from kind of a hippie island on the West Coast that it makes no secret of being fairly left-leaning and very green. Um, and I don't I don't hide behind that. Um, you know, it's no secret of what I think about this issue. But I didn't want to write a book that um, kind of presented the issue in a very familiar way to a lot of people who are already convinced of what needs to be done, what's terrible that's happening. And, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to kind of scream green uh, from page one. And that what that meant is, is stepping into this issue with a little bit more of a clear head and and listening, doing a lot of listening, uh, not just to the voices that are the loudest, which often can be just the environmental activists, but also trying to understand uh, the loggers perspective, uh, and really to try to get in the head of Dennis Cronin, who is the, the timber worker who saved uh, Big Lonely Doug, what became Big Lonely Doug, to try to understand his history, uh, his work as somebody who spent his entire career devoted to taking these trees down. And in the end, right before he retired, uh, saved one of the biggest trees in Canada. And so I wanted to hear that perspective. I wanted to hear what it's like to, to cut down a thousand year old tree and hear that fall. I wanted to hear the the uh, you know higher ups at these companies and what they uh, saw as the future of the timber industry in in British Columbia, uh, this industry that is in serious decline. And I really really wanted to hear uh, the First Nations, the Indigenous perspective on on this issue because it is a very complicated one and it is not one that can be summarized uh, simply and it's not one that can be uh, can be painted by one perspective. And so that was my my goal is like, there's already a subset of this country of, of, of North America that, that already knows this issue, is familiar with it and cares deeply about it. I wanted to write to people who didn't know about the issue, who needed something like what I, what I hoped was kind of a, a captivating story of, of an anti-hero, somebody doing something you wouldn't necessarily expect creating this monolith, creating this symbol uh, and intentionally to bring people who might not otherwise come into this issue to try to um, educate them or, or uh, you know, enlighten them you know, in this issue. So it was, I, that was my, probably my most um, thought over uh, issue in writing this book was making sure that I hopefully got that balance right among perspectives and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I visited uh, the island last month to ride all the routes that we're including in our program. And I was surprised to see uh, this book, <laughs> people carrying it around. It was like the Bible of Port Renfrew. And so um, clearly your book has inspired people. And um, I'm curious from your perspective, 
how has Big Lonely Doug impacted both ecotourism as well as the environmental movement? Yeah, I mean, it's a it, it it's it's a great question. I think it has enormously inspired uh, and changed ecotourism in in that region. You know, Port Renfrew was a place that it's this tiny little you know enclave of a town. It used to have a couple thousand people, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, um, and it's now maybe about three hundred full time residents. And but it was a town that was always one hundred percent devoted to timber. Um, it shipped out uh, trees and logs uh, to to southern Vancouver Island and abroad and down to the U.S. and across to Vancouver. And so it was defined by this one product for its entire history. And what was happening recently is that people were being drawn there, not, not to work in the timber industry, but to see the trees before they fell. And Big Lonely Doug was this kind of catalyst for that. And I thought it was, and partly why I, why I wanted to, or I was so drawn to this story is, is why did Doug captivate people so much? Why did this one tree? And, you know, there are bigger trees. There are, in some ways, kind of more beautiful trees, even in the region. But this one, like I said, speaks to something. There's an issue that is encapsulated in this, in this one frame. When you walk down that or cycle down that gravel road and you turn that corner and you look down to that clear cut, you see it is so emotional. It is so profound to see this sole survivor standing and to know the backstory of somebody who, who saved it. And, and people were drawn to, to go and do exactly that, to, to, to see this tree, to see the survivor, to walk down, to keep it company, to give it a hug, all those types of things. Mm -hmm. um, it became this kind of obelisk. It became this, this destination point uh, um, for people to, to, uh, to visit. And what it did is it, it created this massive, enormous ecotourism uh, industry in that town that has completely transformed uh, the community. It's now has completely rebranded as the tall tree capital of Canada and has really leaned into this, this kind of new resource um, of, of trees still standing. And I think that was, you know, you talked about the value and all these different perspectives looking at this tree. That was one crucial one, was the people who saw the value in keeping these trees standing and encouraged people to go out um, and visit them. In terms of the in terms of the activism, how it's changed things, I think it I think it embodied a lot of the issues around environmental activism on the coast. Uh, there's a there's a great challenge uh, in that work, which is time. You are you are facing a lot of people with a lot of chainsaws and a lot of heavy machinery who are working at breakneck speed to take down as many trees as possible before any kind of legislation uh, prohibits that. And you're, it's this race against time and, and interviewing TJ and interviewing these activists, it became really clear that this was a, a job with, with, you know, a, you know, a, a, a ticking clock. And every time you would perhaps fight the government to save this small patch of old growth forest just down the road, you know, hundreds more are being clear cut. And that was that like profound horror that I saw in some of these activists was their work, their, their wonderful work that they were doing was just being undercut by 
by the thousands of trees that were being felled um, just down the road. And when people go to, to Port Renfrew, you can visit this patch of uh, forest called Avatar Grove that was saved. And the irony is that when the loggers were cutting down the, the forest around Big Lonely Doug was exactly the same time that the activists were working so hard to protect this one forest. And it's this, it's this, it's this deep challenge that these activists have, this long, long work um, and this long road ahead. Uh, and it takes a lot of time on their end and it takes a, it takes a few minutes to, to take down some of these big trees. Yeah, yeah. I'm noticing a big lonely dog behind you. So I'm going to pause the interview here for a second to describe what I'm seeing. On the wall just behind Harley's left shoulder is a painting of a tree. It's standing in the middle of a clearing. Its trunk is tall and slender, and it has a clump of branches at the very tippy top, almost like a Christmas tree appended to a really long stalk. So the tree looks an awful lot like the photograph of Big Lonely Doug on the cover of Harley's book. This is actually a painting uh, by Emily Carr, who's a uh, quite well-known painter on the West Coast, uh, Mm -hmm. who, and she painted this in 1931. This is a painting. No, it's not. (laughs) It's called Scorned as Timber, Beloved of the Sky. And Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is not the real one. Um, and uh, it, uh, when I saw it in my, I can't remember when I came across it. I think it was in my research. Um, it was just, it was incredible. It was prophetic. You know, someone who painted this in 1931. For the people who go there, it is, it is such a a uh, familiar image to to Big Lonely. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It just look, it looks just like the Big Lonely yeah. cover. So, so I have a question for you. The book was published in 2018. And a lot has happened in the world since then. There's been a pandemic. Um, there's been a huge change in the global climate situation. There's been a lot of political unrest all over the world. How would your book change if it were published today? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good question. There was, when, when this kind of, the first wave of, of focus that I mentioned in the kind of late 80s, early 90s uh, on Vancouver Island that brought all that international focus uh, of this issue to the region with the protests in Clackwood Sound and the protests in Carmana. This kind of second wave of, of activism that we've seen much more recently um, was centered around, I mean, it was essentially in the neighborhood of Big Lonely Doug. Uh, the Ferry Creek protests that I'm sure everyone um, heard about or is very familiar with uh, that started in the summer of 2020 and and went on for, uh, for, you know, in earnest for, for well over a year um, was the backyard of Big Lonely Doug. Ferry Creek is just around the corner. Uh, It's a few valleys over from, uh, from the Gordon river Valley where Big Lonely Doug grows. And that issue brought the international eyes, media uh, focus back onto uh, onto the ground and onto Vancouver Island. And I don't know if um, the book would necessarily, or the story itself would necessarily change, but one of the things I thought about, um, in addition to kind of writing a postscript about, um, for a future edition about, about the Ferry Creek protests, but 
one of the things that I thought a lot about was um, how so little had changed mm-hmm. uh, over over the three decades uh, between these 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 massive periods of of upheaval and protest. The same tactics were being employed. The same lines in in the logging road sand were being drawn. Um, you know, the same language was being used, and I think it really struck me that that you know so much can change on the ground. Uh, you know, so many more forests can can disappear, and and yet though the way we talk about them uh, can can stay largely the same. Hmm. And that was something that I, you know, I mentioned one of my goals. Uh, off the top with with the kind of thinking about the audience in mind, but I really focused on on the language of how people talk about this issue and and talk about this ecosystem and these trees and this forest and and the decisions we make about about how we speak about them and how we um, the statistics we choose, all that kind of stuff I found really um, really fascinating to incorporate into the story. And it, th- that was one of the more kind of disheartening things was the realization that as much as we may, I don't want to get too depressing here, but as much as we think we've moved and, and, and pushed the needle on this issue and, and, and stood up and fought back and protested, uh, very, very little behind the scenes uh, has changed. Mm-hmm. The decline of old growth has only accelerated uh, on Vancouver Island, the decline of, of old growth um, like the rate of the speed of of the cut has only accelerated and uh and we're now down to kind of these last tiny little pockets um of that highly productive uh old growth forest where the biggest trees grow uh, on the entire island and that was that was a disheartening uh realization for me um and i think there is a lot of hope here i think there's a lot of incredible work being done still um but that was a big, a big thing that, um, that, that, you know, the past few years made me, made me realize. Yeah, really interesting. We interviewed uh, the photographer TJ Watt for a podcast mm. for this program. And he talked about um, the importance of capturing the beauty of the trees and the sadness and just, and not focusing so much on the doom and gloom, but realizing it's this juxtaposition of emotions and, and there's a tricky balance um, between them all. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I hear and that one the, well. One of the most incredible things about visiting Doug is not necessarily the tree itself and the clear cut, which has regrown, you know, it was replanted after it was cut and it's regrown quite substantially, but it sits next to a patch of old growth um, that was initially named after the premier, the kind of not so well liked, not so pro old growth premier of British Columbia in a way to draw her attention to the issue. It's now called Eden Grove. Mm-hmm. And I've hiked in a lot of forests up and down Vancouver Island, and it is one of the most spectacular patches of forest I've ever been in. And TJ, when he first took me to see Big Lonely Doug, he first took me into the forest. He first took me into Eden Grove and we spent four hours. I was lost. He knew exactly where we were going, um, bushwhacking and hiking through this forest, coming across every turn. It felt like we were stumbling upon, you know, a 600 year old cedar with a bear den in it, or this towering Douglas fir of 700, 800 years old. And it just felt like, you know, wolves were going to appear and cougars were going to appear and bears were going to appear. And, and there were massive trees everywhere. 
And we went from that down out of the forest, out of the green and into the clear cut. And we had walked quite silently in this forest with moss underfoot. And the moment we crossed over this little creek, we were the loudest two people in, you know, in the, in the square kilometer. We were stumbling over sticks and snapping everything. And we walked through this clear cut as Big Lonely Doug kind of rose before us. And it was one of the most, you know, profound um, moments of my life, honestly. Uh, and to see that, to feel that juxtaposition, to be exposed to that uh, is a really important thing. It is, I think, particularly with where the world is right now, with a lot of environmental issues, there is a lot of doom, um, but we need to find that hope. We need to expose ourselves to uh, those small patches, small as they may be. We need to see them. We need to experience them, not just before they're gone, but to realize the value that they have and to and to fight for them in, in any way we can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your book so perfectly describes the experience of being amongst the trees. And when I went and visited these trees and groves myself, I could almost hear your words <laughs> as I heard, you know, the birds chirping and the wind, the wind and the leaves. And I was curious how you captured the experience. There's part of me that sees Harley Russ at his keyboard, just, uh, you know, plucking away at the keys, sitting beneath one of these trees. But how did you go about capturing the experience of being in these big trees or amongst the big trees? I, I didn't have a, a laptop with a good enough battery life to be able to do that. Um, I, I, it was time. Um, I, I was out there for about six or seven months, mostly in Port Renfrew, but a, a lot up island. And, uh, all you know, Every almost every week over the six month period, I would I visited Big Lonely Doug to see it in kind of every phase of the day from dawn till you know till the middle of the night, and and really it was it was just kind of immersing myself in these forests um, at at all kind of weather systems and all times of day uh, to see how they kind of spoke to me to see what they revealed. Uh, you know, full in mist and in full sun in the summer um, in the in the in the fall. And so it was really, it was really time, a lot of note-taking um, pictures, you know, capturing some things on video that I could reference later. Um, a lot of this experience is, is a feeling. Uh, you, can, you can kind of describe a tree and use all sorts of kind of words you want, but, uh, but being in these forests and walking through them is, is a feeling. And, and hopefully to try to convey that feeling um, you know, was was definitely my goal to try to transport people and take them there, and also encourage them to 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 visit themselves. Um, so it was time. It was it was a lot of time and note taking, sitting by myself. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, great segue into my next question. I wanted to circle back to this whole concept of a literary pilgrimage because you are taking us on a literary pilgrimage with with um with your book and clearly you've gone to the places that um that you write about to to Vancouver Island and to the Indian Himalayas i'm curious what is a book that you've read that has encouraged you to go on a literary pilgrimage a literal literary pilgrimage <laughs> oh gosh so many so many i mean i think all books all good books should inspire some kind of pilgrimage and not just like not just 
picking up your shoes or grabbing your bike and 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 following in their footsteps or or you know going to the location that you read about but but kind of a pilgrimage um you know in your mind a pilgrimage in in that takes you from from what point a to point b and how you looked at it look at an issue or look at a perspective or um or you know a way of life or um so I think all good books should do that in some capacity, should kind of transport you and, and encourage you to kind of think beyond that final chapter and that final page. Um, but in terms of kind of literal pilgrimages, I'm a big fan of this whole concept. Um, so there's been a lot. I, I remember reading uh, uh, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. And, and that was one of those books that would just kind of set me on a trajectory to India and a lot of uh, Jan Morris's work, um, the late Jan Morris who passed away a few years ago, uh, took me to Wales and I took this trip. Uh, she was this, for people who don't know, this incredible journalist and, and, and travel writer, uh, although she didn't like the word, uh, the <laughs> uh, travel writer very much. Um, she was the person who broke the story that uh, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary had summited Everest um, for the first time in 1953, and then became this incredible uh, writer. And but wrote a lot about Wales and and lived in Wales uh, for uh, uh, for most of her life. And and I went traveled to Wales and stayed in the hotel where the 1953 expedition came back to have their reunion and uh, hiked up in some, scrambled up in some of the mountains where they had done their training before they went to Everest in, uh, in 53 and, and, uh, and kind of tried to follow in, in her footsteps and find these little pockets. I felt like I was chasing a ghost the entire time. And at one point someone said, oh, Jan was here the night before. And I just felt like I was, I, I was actually um, chasing this ghost, this literary ghost, uh, uh, through through Wales on that trip. So that was a, that was probably my favorite literary pilgrimage. Cool. We'll have to come up with a dirty free hub um, route to, to Mount Everest. So <laughs> that's a <Yeah>. goal. <laughs> Wales might be easier. There's some great. Yeah. <laughs> the riding would be the scenery would be fantastic in both locations. So. Well, um, one final question here. Your book introduced me to the word Brobdingnagian, and oh. we're actually using it as a title for one of our read and ride routes, and we'll talk a little bit more about that word later on. But I'm curious, what is your favorite word? Do you have one? Oh, I, I so I have a this Excel spreadsheet um, where I, whenever I come across a word somewhere that I have to look up or I don't really know what it is or I'm curious about and I and I end up really liking I copy and paste it and the definition into this very long excel spreadsheet with the hope of maybe one day I'll I'll find a place for it in my work and one that I I am kind of obsessed with right now is is scrim uh, which is a fabric it's like this it's a I think it's a kind of fabric but it also can mean um, something that obscures something else. And so I'm fascinated by that notion of peeking behind an issue or an issue that obscures something else or these kind of veils that we put in front of our our, our lives and, and how we kind of peek around them and see through them and evade them. So I'll, hopefully I can use scrim <laughs> some, well, somewhere. We'll look for it. <laughs> yeah. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Let's turn it over to questions, Linda. So this is Linda English, AKA Gravel Girl. She's the co-founder and executive director of Dirty Free Hub, and she is leading up a round of questions for Harley. Okay, so the first question I have is, are you a cyclist? So <laughs> I have to admit, I am not a cyclist. I am a walker, I'm a hiker. I have very I live in Toronto, which is a absolutely terrifying place to be a cyclist. Um, I admire anybody who does it in this city because it is it, it is very, very dangerous. Um, but I've had some really wonderful experiences cycling. And um, one of them uh, was on Salt Spring, actually. And I had, it was on this trail that I had hiked, honestly, a thousand, two thousand times in my life and uh, near my house and and you know how you kind of do these routes that you're so familiar with you know every turn like you could almost do it blindfolded and it was the first time I had done it on a mountain bike and I saw it completely differently uh the speed the light that was beaming through the trees at the rate at my kind of rate of velocity uh was just completely different and I so appreciated that uh uh that kind of perspective shift and um, actually for the, one of the first times I, I did this long, long hike out to Big Lonely Doug when the, when the protests were blockading the road and I, I spent most of the day hiking out to it and it completely changed, um, how I had seen this, this tree, this long, um, route to it. So I'm so, I'm so curious to see how people, the feedback from people who do that, their ride out to it, to see, uh, to hear what they, uh, what they experience in that. So yeah, yes. we'll, we'll be curious about that as well. Um, the next question is, is if you had a million dollars to invest in conservation, um, where would you put that money? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's, <laughs> that's hard question. Yeah, if I had a million dollars, there are so many, um, there are so many First Nations uh, on Vancouver Island that are doing some incredible work uh, with conservation uh, with land use, um, with different forms of resource management that don't get any funding uh, or very little funding. And uh, that would be 100% um, uh, my my place to put that. Okay. What's the next project that you're working on? I have a lot of projects and am slowly chipping away at things. I have one idea for a book that I'm pretty excited about that has a little bit to do with trees, but um, I, I can't say too, too much about it, but it, um, <laughs> it uh, has to do with um, dendrochronology, which is the, the science of tree rings um, and uh, you know, the time that they keep. Um, so that's probably all I can say. Okay. Um, the next question is, I imagine that you've made, a, we imagine that you've made a lot of enemies um, in, in writing your book. So tell us maybe some stories around your enemies or who, who was a surprising enemy for you? Enemies? Um, have I made enemies? I don't know if I've made an enemy. I've, mm -hmm. I've gotten some strong feedback. Um, I'll say that. Okay. Uh, honestly, one of the you know, and I mentioned that 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 Sarah's kind of question about the audience. 
some of the best feedback I got was from the logging community who, uh, and were from kind of loggers who appreciated um, having that perspective. So I get that one, I think I actually got more strong words from the activist community than I did from the logging community, uh, which was interesting. And I, but I also, I've had some kind of, my, my second book, um, which is about this, this fellow who disappears in India in a place where a whole bunch of other people, um, at least two dozen uh, backpackers and tourists have, have mysteriously vanished over the past couple of decades uh, in this one valley in India. Um, the, in, reporting on that issue was very challenging. And uh, I had a couple points where um, the police weren't super happy with me asking questions and certain people in the valley uh, weren't very happy with the journalist coming in and and asking questions. Um, so I'm not sure if I can class that as an, an enemy, but it, it's people not necessarily happy with questions. <laughs> okay, and just one final <clears throat> final question, which has to do with the fires up in Canada. So mm. um, first off, our thoughts are with you in, in Canada, because um, I think everybody in the United States feels really bad about Canada. But so how are you thinking about these fires and what's your sort of your, do you have any, do you have any comments that you wanted to say about the fires specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something that I don't ever remember experiencing uh, as a kid growing up on on the West Coast. And, you know, we're all being faced with um, a new environment. Uh, you know, the images of, you know, the smoke in Europe covering New York City, you know, you know, Toronto um, from the fires in, in northern Quebec. You know, this is, it's completely transforming how we see uh, our very own familiar uh, landscapes and backyards. And it's a, it's an enormous, it's an enormous challenge right now. You know, there's, there's so many fires burning. It's already broken records this year. Um, right now, it's almost a case of triage where, uh, you know, Canada is bringing in firefighters from other countries to try to help out. But unless these fires are in the in the industry, they call them assets. Unless these fires are um, approaching an asset, a town, a cottage, you know, a community, um, they're largely kind of left to their devices because it's just impossible to to contain them. Um, it's it's scary, and I hope that people who are now kind of feeling the smoke firsthand can start to kind of pay attention to to uh, the forces like climate change that are, are exacerbating this issue. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's been very scary. I mean, we, I, we have a newborn baby and uh, he was two months old and we, you know, don't take him outside on the days when, when the PPM is really high. And the last time I experienced that I was living in New Delhi um, and I never thought I would in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Long live the trees. <laughs> Back over to you, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harley. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, we're so glad you wrote this book. And um, I'm glad to have cycled to the trees. And I know there are a lot of folks in the audience who are looking forward to, to seeing the trees and Big Lonely Dog. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for everyone for coming and, and for having me. And please, honestly, if you make this cycle out, please write me. You can find my email address online. I would love to hear how it went and see a picture. So please do reach out. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Arlie. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.
And that's a wrap. Everything you need for Big Lonely Doug's Read and Ride, from other podcast episodes to the route guides and even a video overview of the rides, can be found on our website at dirtyfreehub.org forward slash Big Lonely Doug. If you pedal out to meet Big Lonely Doug and his Brob Dignagian friends, we'd love to hear about it. So make sure to post a comment about your ride on the website. Dirty Free Hub is a nonprofit organization fueled by your generous contributions. Find us at dirtyfreehub.org.